Here at Christ the King Church, we're building up God's people by the ordinary means of grace. We're rooting our Christian practices in historic Reformed faith, and we're preparing our covenant children in the Lord to be the continuing church. And we are in uh, the last mini-series, if you will, within the series that we've been in Mark. Three sermons to go, and then one topical sermon, and then we'll dive right into Ecclesiastes. Right? We've already covered... For those of you that are newer with us, we've already covered the burial and resurrection of Christ. We did that actually in Easter of 2022. And so although it's a bit unorthodox, when we close down our sermon series on Mark, we're just going to stop in chapter 15 because we've already kind of jumped ahead to the end of the book over a year ago. You can find that sermon online. That, that sermon actually is on our website. That, that one got uploaded before the website started acting funny uh, for me when I tried to upload the sermon. So you can find that one if you really just need, need to have closure, like some of you have that need to really like land the plane just that right way. Uh, you can go back and, and listen to that on Sunday evening uh, in a couple of weeks after we, we close out chapter 15. But in each of these three passages that we have left, Jesus is referred to, and I would say properly so, as the king of the Jews. So this is the king of the Jews mini-arc, if you will. And as we close the book, we see kind of the three themes. You might remember this from many, many months ago as we opened the series. I talked about how you'll see the three main themes of the book of Isaiah, right? The, the Christ in that that book is, is shown to be the king, the suffering servant, and the conqueror. Well, those various themes are coalescing in the person and work of Jesus here in chapter 15. He is the king who is also the suffering servant, and he's the conqueror who conquered sin, death, the devil, and even our flesh. Right. So these three major themes of Isaiah are all coming together in Christ here at the end of this gospel account. Before we dive into these verses, let me pray for us once again. Father, we... We come in the name of Christ, our Lord, asking for the help of the Holy Spirit as we open your word. Father, we desire to learn justice and righteousness from you, so do not leave us to, you, to our oppressors. You are the security for your servants, for our good. Do not let the arrogant oppress us. Lord, our eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Deal with us according to your covenantal kindness and teach us your statutes. We are your servants, so give us understanding so that we may know and treasure the testimonies of the gospel. Lord, as we see our world pursuing decay and evil, we know that now is the time for you to act, for your enemies have broken your law. But we are your people, so may we love your commandments above fine gold. May we hear the good news today according to Mark and rightly esteem all of your principles concerning all things, for we desire to hate every false way. We offer this prayer with the help of and in the presence of the Holy Spirit, for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would, stand with me now for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, starting in Genesis chapter 17. This is, of course, the promise. God gives Abraham many promises in this passage, but this is where he promises that his offspring will contain kings, many kings. And, of course, Jesus is the, the ultimate king that comes from the line of Abraham, starting in Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. 
and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we turn to the gospel of Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You can be seated. You've heard me say this before, but at least three times in my adult life, I've had eerily similar conversations with non-Christians as we're dialoguing about worldview and about faith and what they think of God and the Bible. And they all end up asking the similar questions. It goes like this. Why couldn't God just come down and talk with us? Uh, Why couldn't we have a conversation, a dialogue, and sort out what is reason? Why can't we just reason together and come to an agreement about his expectations? Why can't he just have a discussion with us? And as you've heard me say before, my normal response to that has been, I don't think you understand the relationship between creator and creature. Like This isn't how God and created beings interact. There's even a passage in the book of Romans that kind of deals with this kind of apologetic objection, right? Uh, Paul says in Romans 9, look, uh, the clay, the pot cannot say to the potter, what have you done? Why have you made me this way? Right? We don't have that relationship with the sovereign Lord of the universe. Uh, King Charles I, who was uh, beheaded for being a tyrant, uh, he actually said a subject and a sovereign are clean, different things. Right? It probably wasn't his place quite to say that because he's a mere mortal, just like the people he was tyrannically governing, but that is certainly true of God, the sovereign one, and his creatures, a subject and the sovereign Lord. We are clean, different 
things. But for the sake of just an intellectual endeavor, let's go down this rabbit trail as we explore this passage. Let's consider maybe what would happen if God did come down, stand right in front of us, and have conversations with us. We actually get to observe here both the leadership of the Jewish people and the leadership of the Gentiles in that area interacting with God, having dialogues and conversations with God. So how did it go? Right? How do the characters of this text respond to the Lord as he stands with them and dialogues with them? Well, the first way that they respond is enviously. Uh, movie director Oliver Stone once said, never underestimate the power of jealousy and envy to destroy. Mark states that Pilate perceived that the Sanhedrin were motivated by envy or jealousy, right? That's how they respond when the Lord is standing right in front of them. That's how they responded really all along in the book of Mark. They are jealous. They are envious of the way that he's drawing people to himself, of the attention, of the authority with which he speaks, of the crowds that follow him. They want what he has. So they respond with a destructive envy. And the Roman poet Ovid said, Envy aims very high. And yes, killing off your own king via the hands of the Gentile overlords in the area in the middle of a feast season when the town is crowded with Jewish people, this is quite ambitious, isn't it? It's shooting for the moon. And and what they do is they, they bind him, they hand him over, and they accuse him in front of this Gentile governor. How humiliating this would be for a Jewish king to be handed over, be betrayed by his own people. Right? The Sanhedrin, these are like the, you know, the, the 70 to 100 guys that are supposed to be the great lead. This would be, these guys should be asking Jesus to be like his cabinet. Tell us what to do. We'll do anything you want. You're our king. And it said they hand him over to a Gentile governor for judgment. Now, generally, as you've heard me say before, Roman permitted territories to retain a lot of power to self-govern, but with limits, right? The right of the sword, the right to execute someone, to give them capital punishment— Only Rome could do that. But as we've seen in the Bible before, many of you weren't here when we preached the book of Acts, but but the Sanhedrin, when, when they stoned Stephen to death, did they get Rome's permission first? No. Did they go to Pilate then and say, look, there's this guy, Stephen, he's causing lots of problems. Can you do to him what you did to Jesus? No. So it's clear, just from that one example and others, there's times where the, the Jewish leaders They don't really care what Rome has to say about capital punishment and putting people to death. They just do it anyway. So why in the world in this one particular instance do they not just take Jesus out in the back and stone him in the middle of the night? Here's my answer. I think think they want to maximize the optics on the death of Jesus. They want to make it as embarrassing, as humiliating, as gruesome, and as public as possible. Because if they stone him in the dark when no one's there to witness it and they just throw his body somewhere... Uh, where nobody knows where, where it is and nobody gets to witness his death, you know, then there's kind of this nostalgia about this, about this Jesus who was once with us and his disciples could kind of continue his work and there can kind of be still some momentum built by it. So I think what these men are doing is out of their envy, you know, they don't want to just top Jesus. You know, they want to completely wipe him and the memory of him off the map. They want to make his name a stench to Jewish people. And so uh, they want to hand him over for uh, for a very humiliating death, right? And the text says that uh, in the middle of his conversation with Pilate, as Jesus is dialoguing with Pilate, that the Sanhedrin began to accuse him. You know, and you might wonder, well, what, why? Like, 
why do they need to do that? Like they've already discovered, or they've already come to the conclusion, right? It's a false conclusion that he's guilty of blasphemy. So why in the world do they need to offer up accusations to Pilate? Here's why. The Romans wouldn't care about Jews committing blasphemy against gods that the Romans thought were false. If they came to Pilate only with a charge of blasphemy, Pilate would be like, I don't care. That's, that's Hebrew business, right? That's not, that's not my business. Uh, your gods are false anyway. Why would I care that he's blaspheming against gods that I don't think actually exist? You Jews are just lucky we let you worship that false god of yours, right? So they would have had to have drummed up some other charges, some other false charges in order to get Pilate to even consider hearing them out. Now, every year, the Jewish people would get somebody back, right? The text tells us that Pilate, on an annual basis, would say, who do you want? Who's in prison? Who's on death row that you want me to release back to you, right? This is kind of a a brilliant uh, political move of appeasing the people, right? There's an annual amnesty, an annual pardon, and the people get to pick. Could you imagine uh, what that would be like if, if every year the President of the United States was like, all right, popular vote. Who do I pardon, right? You get to kind of go online, you get to go on Twitter or X or whatever it's called these days, and you get to tweet out who I should pardon. Whoever gets the most votes on on my social media page, that's who I'm going to pardon. So that's what they would do. And what these people did, what the Sanhedrin led, particularly the chief priests, what they did is they asked for a murderer instead of their king to get amnesty, right? And we're just like these people. We, in our natural estate, we choose the murderous rule of Satan over the Lord's glorious reign. We'd rather have a murderer than the true king. The American journalist Charlie Reese once said, if malice or envy were tangible and had a shape, it would be the shape of a boomerang. The choice of the dominion of darkness over the kingship of the beloved son, that malice, that envy, is a boomerang that loops back around. We throw it out there like it's a frisbee. Like it's just going to go out there and stop and land. But it's a boomerang that comes back around behind us and hits us in the skull. And there's eternal consequences for us. Now, why is the crowd, why are they so fired up to choose Barabbas over Jesus? Well, the text tells us that they were stirred up. How they were stirred up, we don't know. right? We don't know what kind of spoon the chief priests were using to stir up the crowd. But they instigated, they stoked emotions, they roused the people to choose Barabbas over Jesus. The will of the Sanhedrin becomes like this contagion that spreads through this crowd that gets increasingly more hostile as it goes. Perhaps in their minds, perhaps the logic was this, look, Barabbas is one one of our guys. He's an insurrectionist. Yeah, he's a failed insurrectionist. Yeah, some people got murdered in that whole insurrection event, which by the way, we don't know a ton about because we're not told a ton about that particular insurrection from the Bible. Uh, But there was an insurrection. Perhaps it was an insurrection against the Herodians, which a lot of uh, Jewish people didn't like because of how they cuddled up with Rome. Perhaps it was an insurrection against Rome itself. Who knows? But maybe the logic that was spreading through the crowd was, hey, Barabbas, he's trying. He's trying to free us from the overlords, right? He's, He's got, what has Jesus done? He's been wandering around teaching, Big deal. This guy at least tried to free us from Rome. Perhaps that's what the logic, uh, the logic was that was spreading like a disease through the crowd. And they end up not just asking for amnesty for uh, Barabbas. Have you ever caught this in the texts uh, as you read this account in the various Gospels? They don't just say, free Barabbas. 
They go one step further and they literally cry out. Pilate's like, yeah, but what should I do with him? They could have just said, just beat him and send him home. But the crowd says, crucify him. And then Pilate's like, okay, but hold on, what's he done? Crucify him, even louder. They cry out for the king's death. A composer named Johann Wolfgang von Goethe said, hatred is active in envy, passive, dislike. There is but one step from envy to hate. Hate, And at this point, I'm sure that even Pontius Pilate can see that the envy of the Sanhedrin has leapt face first into a pool of full-blown irrational hatred. Right? When Pilate asks, what has he done? They can't even give a cohesive, simple answer. They're just foaming at the mouth, yelling, crucify him. The crowd is so intense that they request a Roman execution, crucifixion. You know, the king of the Jews doesn't even get to die a Jewish death. He doesn't get to be beheaded like James the just was or stoned like Stephen. No, he has to be crucified. He has to die the death of a vile cr- criminal and insurrectionist. It's highly likely, by the way, uh, that the two guys that Jesus was crucified in between were associates of Barabbas. Maybe one or both of them. So that's what they call out for. A humiliating Gentile execution. That's how it goes. But yeah, you know, God should totally come down and try to reason with us. But how about Pilate? That's just the, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests. We've met them, much to our chagrin. Wouldn't be much fun at parties, probably. But what about this Roman fellow? We don't know much about him. How is a Christian to evaluate him historically and biblically? What are we to make of Pontius Pilate? How do we figure him out? Well, in 6 AD, Judea, you have to kind of keep this in mind. There's the Judea in the Bible. There's Judea, and there's Galilee, and there's Samaria. But from the Roman reckoning of space, Judea was was much bigger in a provincial sense. So Judea is the name of this big province in which Jesus lived and traveled and, and all those other things. That becomes an official Roman territory in 6 AD, and Pilate was the fifth of 14 governors. Uh, He became governor uh, officially in 26 AD, and his rule ended in 37 AD. He actually had the longest tenure of any of those 14 governors. Of course, that province ends in 70 AD when uh, Rome is like, all right, you want to mess with us? We're going to come into Jerusalem, come into Judea, and flatten the place. Uh, But you might be tempted to think, wow, 11 years. He must have been a really great governor. He must have been really successful. Well, you need to understand Uh, that Judea is not the post that a Roman governor would want. Uh, This is kind of the place that you send guys to get their feet wet, and as soon as they prove themselves, they get to leave. Nobody takes the Judea job and is like, yeah, my dream job. I'm going to live this out as long as I can. It's going to be great. Everybody goes there thinking, all right, they look at their wives. Keep your head down. We're going to do a good job here. We're going to get out as fast as we can. All right, this is a stepping stone to bigger and better things, baby. I promise. Tell your dad we're not going to be in Judea long, okay? Like, that's the conversation. Some of you have been there before. We're like, look, I know this isn't ideal. All right, it's just temporary. So the fact that he's there for 11 years means the higher-ups in Rome kept looking at Pilate and going, I don't think we can move him off this post. There kept being hiccups along the way. Now, he's, according to scholars, a relatively competent guy. It's important to understand Pilate's competence and his job performance issues are not due to his ignorance, but rather his inflexibility, right? There's stubborn fools, and then there's stupid fools, and they're categorically slightly different. The results are often the same. 
But you need to understand that his blunders, they're kind of like unforced errors. They're self-inflicted wounds due to stubbornness. He lived during his time in Judea on the coast in, in a facility built by the Herodian, the Jewish kind of puppet kings there in the area. He, it's, it was called Caesarea Maritima, right? So he, he lived on the coast, right? Why would I live there in the big capital city with all those Hebrews if I can be on the beach and look at the water, right? So he would come during seasons like this into Jerusalem when the population would swell and there'd be these feasts. He would come to, you know, he's got to do his job. He would come to make sure everything was copacetic, make sure that everything stayed peaceful. And then, of course, to do this annual act of amnesty for the Jewish constituents that he, that he served there. So he would come from the coast uh, into Jerusalem, and he would stay on another, uh, in another house, in another campus, so to speak, developed by the Herodians. Right? So that's what's become of the Jewish rulers there in the area, is, is basically they build these great big areas and facilities uh, but anytime the, the Roman governor wants, they basically have to Airbnb their house out to him probably for free. Okay, so that's how it's working. Now, you need to understand that as stubborn and as inflexible as he was, he was also harsh even by Roman standards. Right? So you have to, under, you have to think about this. One of the Roman, the Roman uh, emperors that he served under was Caligula, the mad emperor. And in the first year of Caligula, uh, Caligula's t- uh, uh, tenure, he fired Pilate in 37 AD because of the way that Pilate responded to this uprising in Samaria, which is right next door to where these events are taking place. He dispatched uh, uh, Roman soldiers. A bunch of people uh, died. Word got back uh, to Caligula how harsh and heavy-handed Pilate was, and that was the last straw. But there have been several incidents like this where the throttle needed to be put down just a little bit on the people, and Pilate's like, let's go to 10. Let's dial it up to 10 real Quick, there was this one incident, uh, similar to a previous incident that I've mentioned, uh, where Pilate put Roman emblems all around the temple to kind of remind the Jewish people who was really in charge. They didn't like that too much, so they sent a, a dispatch of Jewish people out to his, uh, his beachfront property where they kind of quietly just stood there and pestered and protested for five days. And on day five, Pilate comes outside, get off my lawn, right, uh, or I'm going to kill you. And they fall to their knees and they pull back their tunics and expose their necks and they're like, go ahead. They double down. So now they're kind of in, not a Mexican standoff, but like a Judean standoff, uh, right? And Pilate's like, yeah, I've already got a couple strikes against me. Y'all just go home. I'll remove those emblems, right? He's skating on thin ice with the higher ups in Rome, right? So if you, you might wonder why Pilate, uh, why Pilate acts the way that he acts in this passage. And it's in part because he's, he's kind of already somewhat on a probation, right? He once stole temple funds from, from the Jewish temple, treasury funds to build 23 miles of aqueducts there in Jerusalem. I'm sure the people were glad to have running water, uh, but they were upset by what he did, and so they began to, uh, to protest. And during that protest, Pilate once again dispatches Roman uh, soldiers, and people were trampled, and, and of course, you know, centurions and their guys have swords, so they were, there was trampling, and there was also, you know, death by sword, right? So you kind of gets an overview of kind of the heavy-handedness of Pilate. Luke even alludes to another deadly incident in his gospel account. So you kind of get a picture of Pilate, harsh, even by Roman standards, inflexible, can be stubborn, right? He's a blunt force object, stuck in a post that nobody wants. But how in this text does he respond to Jesus? 
I would say ambivalently. Ambivalence is the state of having mixed feelings or contradictory ideas about something or someone. And I think his ambivalent mindset could be summed up like this. Jesus is interesting and he's innocent, but I'm not going to invest political capital and Roman resources to intrude on this very Jewish matter. I'm not going to use Roman resources to interpose for the so-called king of the Jews. This is a their house matter. I'm over here. I got my business to attend to. I got my job and my life to consider. And as we consider the actions of Pilate, they, can, they alliterate. They can be kind of sum, summarized in three things, his attitude towards Jesus and his actions. Amazement, awareness, and appeasement. He's amazed by Jesus. He's aware that Jesus is innocent, but he ultimately uses Jesus to appease the crowd that is shouting and getting louder and louder. Verse 5, he's talking with Jesus. You kind of imagine how, how, how uh, Pilate would have been thinking, right? He's leaving his, his beachfront town. He's going, all right, got to go to Jerusalem. going to be bored out of my skull while I just kind of make sure everything happens. Hopefully, you know, there's no, there's no mobs I have, to, I have to put down this time. How am I going to sort through this? And then all of a sudden he meets Jesus and the text says he's amazed. He's marveling. He's wondering. He's just very interested by Jesus. This was probably not something he would he expected was going to happen. He probably didn't expect, look, the Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem, they're going to bring me their king and I'm going to have an interesting evening. But that's what happens. He's interested. And verse 10 and 14 tells us that he believes that the reason that Jesus has been brought to him is not because he's actually guilty of anything, but because of these other men are envious. Verse 10, he knows he's innocent. Verse 14, they call for him to be crucified. And he's like, what has he done? Right? This is all about political envy, partially. I mean, Pilate's inflexible and stubborn, but he's not ignorant. He knows what's going on here. He even pushes back against the mob who's crying out for Jesus' death. But as one lawyer once put it, Pilate is informed and willing. He's a willing participant in the death of Jesus, a man that he knows for sure is innocent. I really love the movie Tombstone. Uh, I, let me rephrase that. I don't love the movie Tombstone. I love going on YouTube and watching the highlight reel of Val Kilmer playing Doc Holliday in that movie. Right? So anytime I'm like, I kind of want to watch Tombstone, I'm like, I don't want to commit that kind of time. I'm just going to go watch Doc Holliday's best lines from the movie. Anybody else ever done that? We're like, I don't really like the movie. I just like these bits of the movie. Well, that's me. Okay. Doc Holliday meets Johnny Ringo in the saloon there as Wyatt Earp has retired, remember, from being a lawman, and he's, he's kind of running a casino inside of a saloon. And uh, Doc Holliday is talking to his, his girlfriend, and he's like, I'm not really sure what to make of Johnny Ringo. I think I hate him. There's just something about him, something around the eyes. He reminds me of me. I, I think I hate him. And Wyatt Earp, knowing that Johnny Ringo's a very dangerous gunman, the fastest pistol in the West, according to Doc Holliday, um, he says, he tries to excuse Doc Holliday's back, bad manners, and he says, look, he's drunk. And then in Latin, because Doc Holliday was trained classically in Greek and French and Latin at the Valdosta Institute in Georgia back in the day, he said in Latin, in wine there is truth. Well, Johnny Ringo also speaks Latin, and he responds in Latin, watch what you do quick-witted, but yet surprised that Johnny Ringo knows Latin. Uh, Doc Holliday says, tell that to someone else, not to me. And then he taps on his gun, and Johnny Ringo says, experience is the teacher of fools. 
To which Doc Holliday replies, rest in peace. And then he turns to his girlfriend. He says, that's Latin, darling. Johnny Ringo is an educated man. Now I really hate him. When I look at Pontius Pilate, especially when you read the other gospel accounts, it's very clear that this is not an uneducated, blockheaded, merely a blunt force object, although he seems to be that at times. He knows exactly, he's informed. He knows exactly what's going on here, and yet he uses Jesus to appease the crowd. He sees the political pinball machine going haywire, and he uses Jesus as a political token to keep the game to his liking. He probably knows that he will have to use blunt force again if the crowd gets too hot and bothered. And what's one guy, one Jewish man, one Jewish teacher who claims to be king? I can spin his death to Rome easily. So this is, this is a pretty simple political choice for Pilate. And isn't it interesting? This is the only mere mortal man mentioned in the early church catechisms and creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. There's only two non-divine characters that are mentioned. It's Jesus' mother Mary, the Virgin Mary, right? And Pontius Pilate. The Apostles' Creed says that he suffers under Pontius Pilate, and the Nicene Creed said he was, for our sake, crucified under Pontius Pilate. Both of those creeds capture the same thing in some sense. At least part of the blame for the death of Jesus is laid at the feet of Pontius Pilate. He had the political power to say, this man is innocent and my centurions are standing by and you know my reputation. But he didn't. He was told to Uh, by his wife, have nothing to do with this man. He, in the other gospel accounts, he tries to wash his hands of this matter. Well, the early church fathers, the early Christians who wrote these creeds, they don't let Pontius Pilate off the hook. Now, earlier I mentioned the common objection that I've encountered when talking about God with a few people as an adult, right? Why can't we talk about this, right? That line of thinking, why can't God just come down and dialogue with us? Well, my new response to that objection, that idea is, well, God kind of tried that already. You could point people to this passage. How did that go? God became a man and started dialoguing with humanity, giving us his standards, telling us very clearly who he is, and we killed him. It's right here in the text. Jew and Gentile are co-conspirators in the death of God. Working together, informed. Christ has already told the Sanhedrin I am the Christ, when asked directly. And here in this passage, we see that he tells Pilate, we'll get to this in just a second, that he is, in fact, the king of the Jews. But this is our fallen condition. This is the sinful estate of our humanity that we share with these people in this passage. The Lord could stand right in front of us. He could testify to the truth about himself, his word. He could show us his standard for how we ought to live. And we would respond to him the way that they did, according to our own agenda, and not according to his Like the people here, we would objectify the king. The Sanhedrin treat Jesus like an object in their way that needs to be removed. And Pilate ultimately objectifies Jesus by treating him like a token that can be used for his own political ends. People still do this to this day. What's the right way to respond to Jesus? Because these guys both get it wrong. Let's comb through these verses one last time. I I was watching TV about six months ago with Les. I can't remember what show we were watching. 
Uh, but uh, she looked up from her computer, because she's working on the newsletter probably, uh, and she said, wait, are they showing us the same events again? I'm like, yeah, they're doing a whole, like, you get to see the, the events from this character's perspective, and then this one, and then this one, there's probably a fourth one. And then by the end of the episode, we'll have seen everything like four different ways, right? We're kind of doing that here again. We're going to go through these verses again and grab things out of the text to show us how we can rightly respond to Jesus. First is this, Jesus is king. Look at verse 2. I, the, verse, the verse is not rendered super clearly in the ESV. I think the New American Standard is a little bit better. But in his commentary, I really love what R.C. Sproul has to say. That the answer of Jesus is, you said it. Pilate says, hey, are you the king of the Jews? And essentially what Jesus is really saying, if you, if you render the Greek, I think, most accurately, he's saying, you've nailed it. Right? The way Jordan Peterson would say, you said it, bucko. Right? That's the way Jordan Peterson would say it. You've nailed it. Hit the nail on the head. That's exactly right. First uh, Timothy 6.13, Paul says that Jesus, in the presence of Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. What is that good confession? It's this. It's verse 2 of Mark 15. Who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, you've said it. That's the good confession. That's the good confession we all need to make. We must receive Jesus as king. We must embrace his rule. Every single one of us. It's to make this good confession that Jesus is king. Secondly, I want us to understand from verse 10 and verse 14 that Jesus is innocent. As I've previously mentioned, Pilate tries to wash his hands of Jesus, and his wife had a dream and told him, have nothing to do with this man because he was innocent. But see, if a man is truly innocent, the standard of God's law is not wash your hands and just let what happens happens. If you're a civil magistrate and someone is truly innocent, you can't just sit back and let the mob do what they want. You have to intervene. It's literally Pilate's job to uphold justice. Jesus is innocent. He calls out to the crowd, Pilate does, and says, well, what, what's he guilty of? They have nothing coherent and legitimate to say because there are no charges, truly. And our application is we can lay no blame at the feet of Jesus. There is no charge of evil for anyone to really place upon him. And here's the implication. Jesus is king, and he's totally innocent, free of all charges that anyone could lay at his feet. There's implications of that. That means that if he's our king and he rules us, his rule will be just. Secondly, it means, as the book of Romans says, if we have union with Christ, there are then no charges that people can bring against us in the throne room, the courtroom of God. Isn't that good news? If Jesus is completely innocent, completely righteous, it means we have a king who will rule and govern us justly. And if we indeed have union with him, it means his righteousness is given to us. That When God looks at our accounts, he sees the righteousness, the innocence of Christ. Here's the third thing we need to understand about Jesus from this passage. It's in verse 11. Jesus is the son exchanged for the guilty. Pilate says, who do you want me to set free? And they cry out, Barabbas. Barabbas' name, I love the way that God providentially brings all of these elements in the story together. Barabbas' name means son of Abba or son of a father. So you see what's happening here? Are you tracking with this? The people have a choice. Someone's going to go free and someone's going to die. And the son of the father in heaven goes to his death. And the one that is set free is actually guilty, the son of a father. That's the great exchange, folks. That's what happens in the gospel. 
They traded places. Jesus trades places with us. In the movie Tombstone, uh, if you know uh, the true backstory of Doc Holliday, uh, he died at my age, actually 36 years old, of tuberculosis. Tuberculosis took his mother when he was very, very young. I think it was probably right after he was born even. It also killed his older sister. So tuberculosis uh, just, uh, you know, I don't know if it's hereditary, but it, it consumed, consumption consumed their family in some sense. But in the movie Tombstone, he's lying there in bed, sweating to death. Tuberculosis has just racked his body, and his friend is in his room. Wyatt Earp is standing there with him, and Wyatt has a date with Johnny Ringo, a duel at dawn, right? And he's talking with Doc Holliday about Johnny Ringo, trying to figure out what makes Johnny tick. And he sits down on the edge of Doc Holliday's bed, and he says, I can't beat him, can I? And Doc Holliday, a good, true friend, tells his friend Wyatt Earp the truth. He says, no, you can't. And then he says, well, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go with you. And as he get, tries to get out of bed, he, he fakes, he feigns being more sick than he really is. And in his writings on Doc Holliday, Wyatt Earp is just talking about the, the great kind of juxtapositions of Doc Holliday's life. He says, he was this slender, frail, blonde man racked with tuberculosis, and yet he was one of the greatest gunfighters I had ever seen. That's a true account of, of Doc Holliday's skill with a gun. And so Val Kilmer falls back into the bed, right, playing Doc Holliday. But what really happens, right, what really happens in that movie is that he's, he's deceiving Wyatt so that he can get to the duel with Johnny Ringo before Wyatt Earp can. Because he knows that if he lets Wyatt go to that duel, Wyatt's going to die. He trades places with them. And he gets there, and Johnny Ringo has a moment of panic. And, and Val Kilmer, just with that deep southern drawl, he says, Johnny Ringo, you look like someone just walked over your grave. And Johnny Ringo tries to squirm out of the duel. If you've seen it, do you remember that part? And he says, no, no, no. Johnny, we started something long ago that we haven't finished yet. We're playing for blood, remember? you see the wonderful picture of the gospel in that scene? Long before you were ever born, something began between Christ and the devil, between God and Satan. Satan has all kinds of accusations to lay against you, all kinds of charges to bring against the elect of God. And Jesus steps in and says, no, 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 we're playing for blood. It's really beautiful. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, it, it makes it very clear that somebody is walking over the grave of death itself, and it's Jesus. There was a duel at dawn that belonged to each one of us, but there was just no possible way that we could win. And Christ took that walk. Famously, what in real life Doc Holliday said to Johnny Ringo, this is what he actually said in their real-life rivalry. He said, Johnny Ringo, all I want from you is 10 paces in the street at noon. Everyone today is like this crowd in this story. Everyone is being asked, what do you want, the insurrectionist or the king? We must cry out for this son, Jesus, the son of the Father, because when we get to son, we get a just ruler who loves us and who gave himself up for us. We are the murderous insurrectionists like Barabbas that was set free. You and me, we are the ones who should have died. But the father in heaven traded his son for you and for me. The big idea of this passage, really the next three passages, is that Jesus is king. 
And we can respond rightly or we can respond wrongly. And the right response is to acknowledge his kingship by faith, acknowledge his innocence and our own great guilt, and to trust that Jesus' life was exchanged indeed for yours. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you were willing to allow your son Jesus to be delivered over to Pontius Pilate and to stand condemned in our place. We thank you that the Holy Spirit applies this redemption to us, making us alive and convincing us and converting us as sinners into saints so that we might be people who cry out for the king to save us. We offer this prayer in the name of King Jesus who taught us to pray.